Welcome back, everybody, to the Classic Rock Podcast. And coming up in this edition, I'm going to be talking to Key Marcello, yes, the former Europe man, about his new band and album. It's called Out of This World, and it's a glorious return to that melodic rock sound of the 1980s. If you haven't heard it, it is very good, and we're going to be playing tracks from that a little bit later on. But we're going to start this month looking back 50 years, because it's 50 years since 1972. A couple of years ago, we did the turn of the year and anniversary edition of 1970. And uh, last year, of course, we did the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of 1971. So, only right, really, I suppose we should pay a little homage to 1972 as well. And there was a few events in the turn of the year, actually, in 72, which were worthy of a mention. Firstly, Paul McCartney actually debuted Wings as a live band, playing his first live gig since the Beatles had split up, and he did it. No, not at uh, some London venue in front of 20,000. It was Nottingham University. And David Bowie, he opened the Ziggy Stardust World Tour at... Where was it? Think. Wembley? No. The Marquee Club? No. Nothing like that. It was the uh, Toby Jug Pub down in uh, Tolworth in Surrey. And, and talking of old boozers, ELO debuted as a live act this year as well at the Fox and Greyhound Pub down on Park Lane in Croydon. Uh, this place, unlike the Toby Jug, where Bowie started, uh, does actually at least still exist, but not as a live venue. And if you look back over the years, and of course you go wandering through the the internet, you'll find that there were some amazing bands play there and amazing lineups. Uh, Bowie actually was supported by Roxy Music here. So, well, what a night that would have been. Led Zeppelin on one of their global jaunts stopped off to a gig in Singapore. And the authorities, well, they didn't really know an awful lot about Led Zeppelin. Uh, When they saw them, they decided they wouldn't let them actually off the plane due to their long hair. Uh, Bands that actually began their career this year included Beck, Bogart, Apice, Jeff Beck, Tim Bogart and Vinnie Apice. They did one album that came out in 73 and it was really very good. Uh, Magnum, who we featured in the last show, they began 50 years ago. The Jam. The Jam, yeah, that jam with Paul Weller. They kicked off in 72, the same year as Brian Johnson. Yes, he of ACDC started with Geordie, the Outlaws, Sticks, uh, Twisted Sister as well, and initially established in 1972 in Pasadena were Van Halen. Now, it'd be really easy, I suppose, when you talk about 1972 to uh, just uh, trot out a few tracks from Exile on Main Street, uh, Black Sabbath Volume 4, Machine Head by Deep Purple, Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull, Closer to the Edge by Yes, but that's not what we're about here. And you know that. So let's at least put in a bit of effort here. Uh, So where should we start about here? This was a band that was about to split up and then in 1972, Mob the Hoople released this album, All the Young Dudes. And from it, a song that turned out to be an even bigger hit when Mick Ralphs packed it up in his bag and took it along to his new band called Bad Company. 
just love that. Called Ready for Love. And as we said, Mick Ralph took this song over to Bad Company, who had it on their first album. And that album, of course, remember, went to number one. And it wasn't the only song that he took either, because another one that they didn't record, not the Hoople, which they did over at Bad Company, was a, uh, a little tune called Can't Get Enough. That turned out to be a bit of a hit as well. And from there, from the blues to a little more melody here. This is a song written by Ken Hensley, who said it actually came from a dream that he'd had over the course of a week. It was a first single released from Uriah Heep's Demons and Wizards album. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was a hit. It was on Top of the Pops. If you look back over YouTube, you'll be able to find the footage from Top of the Pops, which was the weekly televised uh, show which highlighted the uh, top uh, 30 or top 40. Uh, this then was not as big a hit as Easy Living that came after it, but still if you, if you talk to you right, fans, uh, this is still one of the favourite songs uh, they ever recorded, and for good reason. Dave Byron's voice is in amazing form here. This is The Wizard.
brilliant, wasn't it? It was The Wizard from Demons and Wizards by Uriah Heep, as we said, had a, a very busy 1972. They're going to have a very busy 2022 as well. They're out on a mammoth tour around the UK and Europe, so do catch them if you can. Still a very, very good live band indeed. Right, we've only got time for another couple, so what should it be? I think it's time we got a bit raucous, don't you? Time to get out your chair, let your hair down, have a bit of a stomp about the old living room or wherever it is you're listening. Just wake the neighbours up a bit. Here's a band that released an awful lot of songs. 16 top 10 hits, 6 number ones. They were huge in Europe and England. Uh, but they weren't so big in the United States. Never really had a big hit there until the early 1980s. So, for those of you that uh, didn't get them first time round, you're listening over in the States, uh, this is what you missed. Noddy Holder and Slade. Bye. 
there you go. That was Slade. No idea why they didn't make it in the USA. You might remember in the early 1980s, Quiet Riot had a hit, big hit with Mama We're All Crazy Now, which actually was the big hit off of the 72 album Slade. Uh, now, in terms of the ironies, how about this? That song you just heard, which was called Goodbye to Jane, was kept off of the number one spot in the UK by Chuck Berry's My Ding-A-Ling. Nothing wrong with that. But that song was actually recorded in Coventry, My Ding-A-Ling. I never knew that. And Slade were actually at the gig watching it. There you go. I bet you never knew that. And by the way, you probably didn't know who Jane was either, the subject of that song, Goodbye to Jane. Uh, she was actually a chat show host that they met while they were over in San Francisco. So there you go. Time for one more. Now, when DJ John Peel, who was on the air over here in the UK, first heard this song, he said, now, boys and girls, this is a real gem. And if it isn't a number one, you all deserve to be horsewhipped. What was it? What could it have been? Well, prior to this coming out, this band were probably best known for the uh, late 60s hit pictures of Matchstick Men, but out in 1972 came Pile Driver. And from it, one of the mainstays of a status quo show, even today. <laughs>
That was, in case you needed any introduction, the magnificent status quo. Now, on to our special guest in this show. Key Marcello joined me recently to talk about his new band and album, both called Out of This World, which, when on first listen, whisked you right back to those glory days of the 1980s when there was big choruses, big live shows, rock anthems, and, of course, very big hair. It all ruled the airwaves and, of course, the MTV schedules. Now, he is perhaps known to many of you for his time with the other band. Yes, Europe. But there is a lot more to the man than just Europe. So before we get down to talking about music live and why he's decided to take big melodic rock back to where it belongs out in the world, let's hear a track from Out of This World. Will the sun light up the sky in a million years from now on a pale blue dot called our home? Will the moon look down and cry in a
out of this world uh, resurrects a musical genre we thought was lost forever. Now, that was a quote from the press release. Now, you, you, you've done it in a lot of style here because this is a, this is a fabulous debut album. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we really are the great white hope for melodic rock. I mean, a, a genre that hopelessly but disappeared uh, after grunge, basically, which was so unfair since grunge lasted for about five minutes, doesn't it? After about a year, yeah, yeah, nobody, yeah. Wanted, nobody wanted to be called grunge after a year. Then it was gone. So it was such a waste. It changed the entire dynamics of the of the uh, recording industry. And um, it took many, many years for it to recover, I think. And But now genres are a, a different thing altogether. Back then, I mean, before the 80s, hard rock was more an underground thing, you know, and obviously became man, mainstream with the 80s and the hair bands and then back to underground again. But now, I finally, I can see fans that are in their 20s picking up my music uh, just because they find them on Spotify or iTunes or Amazon and, and check it out. This is a big positive, isn't it, really, for for some bands, not not for everybody. I understand the, the issues with payment from to artists and some of these platforms, but the ability to just dip back into a catalogue like yours, for instance, and do what I was doing yesterday, which was uh, looking back and playing easy action, you know, from 40 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and what, I mean, these digital uh, formats makes it possible and and very easy to, to get into this music. So um, I'm speaking to my promotion people and uh, they get fan mails from from very young people. You say, "What is this new musical style?" I mean, they're referring to my solo albums, which is AOR, but to them, it's new because music hasn't really developed the last ten years. I would say it's pop music uh, is doing pretty much the same thing nowadays. It's just some programmed drums and, and a vo- very loud voice and. Uh, so the shape of pop hasn't been getting a long way in the past ten years. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, think. out of this world, your your first album since Key of Hearts a couple of years ago, twenty seventeen, which yeah. was in itself uh, pretty well received all round. Uh, Tommy Hart on vocals, Ken Sandin on the bass, they remain. Yeah. Uh, what was the objective when you put this project together? How were you going to uh, differentiate the sound between the Key of Hearts and this new project out of this world? Yeah, what, while Key of Hearts started off as a project, uh, just that, I mean, the record label, which I was on as a solo artist at the time, asked me if I wanted to play the guitar on a Tommy Hart solo album. And I thought that was a great idea because I just finished my building my studio in my house. Um, I had a big studio before, but I got rid of it in 2018. So uh, it would be a great opportunity for me to try out my amps and the new rig, basically, in, in my house. So I said yes. And 
after a while, it became obvious to me that the record company were trying to sell this as a band. That's why a lot of people think the Key of Hearts is a band, but it was not. They labeled it as a band. I, obviously, they had more to gain if it looked like the band, but it really wasn't. And I didn't write any of the music. Uh, Tommy wrote some lyrics, I think. If that would have been a band I participated in, I would have been gone about it completely differently. I mean, I w I'd like to produce and write songs and all that. And I did nothing of that of Key of Hearts. Then when we decided to start Out of This World, uh, obviously I wanted Darby Todd playing the drums, first of all. We already had Ken Sandin, so, and Darby and Ken and I go way back, so I, it was definitely something we needed in the band, I felt. Darby, who played with uh, Gary Moore and uh, The Darkness, Darkness as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Devin Townsend, he's an amazing player who who can play any style you wish for, you know. So it felt, the first time it felt like a band was when it was the four of us, Ken Sand and Ken, uh, Darby Todd, Tommy and me. You said that the album never felt like a project. It felt like a band from day one. Uh, and you know, the other like, guys have said that as well. Does that mean that we can expect to see uh, lots of live performances and, and further material here as well? Oh, Out of This World is definitely a band. This is so much, as much as a band as you get. I mean, uh, this whole thing, recording the album has been an absolute pleasure i mean it started off with us doing uh, the one and only key of hearts concert we did actually and by then we already had darby in the band so it was actually that it's quite confusing it's the out of this world lineup but we were playing under the flag key of hearts in germany uh, at the heat festival ludwigsberg and uh during rehearsals we had two days of rehearsals in uh, top floor studios in gothenburg and we nailed everything. It was it's, it was so effortless just nailing the songs. And we had lots of time, spare time in the studio. And as so happened, I had some demos with me that I played back for a band and three songs. And those were Twilight in a Million Years and Lighting Up My Dark. So before we left the rehearsal place, well, the studio, we had three basic tracks for the new album, you know. And uh, we finished those three tracks off, and uh, that was the material that the manager has been shopping deals for us since. But that was also when the band was born. Being together, all the four of us in the studio, uh, and working on three new original songs. Uh, in a million they, years, yeah, uh, was originally written for the Europe album. Prisoners of Paradise. So how did you come back uh, to, to dig that up after 40-odd uh, years? I'm surprised when you listen to it now. I mean, it's because, a great song, but you haven't found and used it before. Yeah, I know. And, I mean, when I wrote it back in 1990, I remember Europe's then manager, Herbie Herbert, who also managed, managed uh, Journey. And, I mean, he loved the song. And he really wanted Europe to do it, but for various reasons, it never made the album. So I always had I had this, this song in the back of my mind, but I never found the right uh, 
way of doing it, rearranging it, rearranging it, until I met Tommy and we did something similar, just fooling around in the studio. I was I was thinking maybe Tommy's voice would be awesome on this, and and he tried it out and it was just wow, we can mix it now. <laughs> it was it was inst instantly there the feeling. So his voice is a big part of that song becoming. You had a uh, you had a couple of other songs as well, didn't you? Written back in those times for the albums that weren't used, too too far gone and uh, can't fake love. Did you uh, you ever looked at bringing those back into play? Oh yeah, well I, I actually did record that on. I, I changed the name because I rewrote the lyrics, so it's called. Uh, uh, it's on the Scaling Up album now. It still goes too far gone in in the uh, in the choruses, but but uh, it's called uh, "Finger on the Trigger" now. Actually, but right, that's to be found on the Scaling Up album. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good with uh, recycling stuff. I mean, <laughs> a good song is a good song is a good song, and yeah, some. But but the only well, there was one other song on on the Outer's World album that uh, came from a. A different direction. It, I, I wrote the song with the the singer and the drummer of Easy Action for a reunion thing we planned to do that never happened in 2007, and uh, it's called Not Tonight. So that was actually meant for Easy Action. I had the demo and played it back to Tommy in the studio, and he had loads of great ideas. For instance, he came up with this tapping pattern in the verses, which is kind of unusual. Uh, uh, and so he cr gave that song new blood and new life. So uh, that's why it ended up on the album. The rest of it is written during during COVID, basically. You've managed to actually accomplish something which isn't easy to do, which is to master that the 80s vibe and that sound and recreate something that sounds fresh and vibrant for today. Yeah. Yeah, that's a challenge in itself. I mean, and you need everybody doing their bits and pieces. And I think one thing that also helps it feel a bit more, more modern or today is the, I have this, I mean, my electronica synthesizers, I play a lot of keyboards on the album as well. And, and that together with arrangements uh, uh, takes it into a different room a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm not the same sort of composer as... Uh, uh, Tempest in Europe, for instance, mm. I have completely different influences. I'm more like of a Todrungren guy, I would say. And I think you hear that on this album. Uh, uh, that style is coming out fully.
Tommy Hart. Uh, you've got a vocalist here that obviously you've known him for many, many years, who yeah. perfectly suits the music. He's one of those rare vocal talents whose live performances as well are as good as what he can put down in the in the studio. It, it is a perfect match for your music. Oh, I think so. It's amazing. And almost instantly when we met, it was like a brotherly love between us. And the only gig we did so far was the same, was just as effortless. I mean, normally it takes some time for a guitar player working with a, a lead singer before they find their places, their spaces on stage, if you if you want. I mean... It's, it's always about the interaction between the lead guitarist and the guitar player in the, in the melodic rock band, and it's so important. And it just came instantly on the, the very first gig we did. It's like we never did anything else. And that's a really good sign when everything just comes automatically. It, it saves a lot of time for long discussions in what direction the band would go, because there had never been any. We always wanted to go in the, exactly the same direction. I mean, that's a classic, isn't it? You know, the band split up due to the members' different tastes in music. Yes, true. Now, tell me, Ron Neverson is involved in the reduction process. Now, his resume is considerable, to say the least. It's a who's who of some of the great melodic and hard rock of the 80s, Kiss, Survivor, Hearts, Fabulous, uh, Bad Animals. Uh, and of course, he worked with you uh, in Europe as well. What was it like to to team up with him again? And how did you tempt him to get involved? Uh, it was just amazing. I'm so happy. So as you said, I mean, he's instrumental for this album he has a, a big part of it the thing is we had uh, a couple of uh, guys trying out some mixes for the album and we weren't simply not happy with the result so then Tommy suggested why don't you call Ron and so happens I had his number because I, I did speak to him not so long ago when I was doing Rock of Ages in Stockholm I spoke to somebody else in the, the, the music business in America who said they talked to him. So I got his number and talked to him. And I, I just said, Ron, I think I have a, a project here that you would do really well. I mean, uh, and I started asking about his, uh, his schedule and all that. And he was very generous and said, OK, send me, just Dropbox me the files for a, a song of your choice. And I'll make you a mix, no strings attached. If you if you like it, we'll go for it, you know. Uh, or if you like the other guys better, go for that. And of course, he sent us back a mix that completely blew our minds. And the first one he did was uh, Twilight, and he, which is kind of a complicated song to mix as well. If you think about it, seven minutes long, and it's a lot of different parts, ups and downs. And he just nailed it. And there were, after that, there were no doubt in our minds that he's the guy to do this. So happy he's, he did the album. Uncovering those tracks and working with, with Ron Neverson, did, did that bring back memories of your, uh, your first album with Europe back in the day? Oh, yeah, absolutely. A lot of memories came back and... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Between mixes, we we would talk. We would be online on a streaming service, so I would actually see him on screen, and you know, it was actually like being in in his studio, although he was in the state of Washington, where where he lives, and 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 where he's got a studio in his house. So uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, talking about good old members and stuff, and and the music business in general, and. And he has just fabulous stories. He was telling me stories about how he was with uh, Ronnie Lane, yeah, in, yeah, in Mallorca, and he was doing he was doing demos. Uh, they were doing demos on a cassette deck, believe it or not. <laughs> they had a mixer board, and they didn't have a reverb or anything, so they they put two SM57s down in a well. To get reverb, <laughs> brilliant. Everybody, I always remember everybody thought at the time when you uh, arrived at uh, with with Europe that you yeah. were this you know this hot shot you know young guy given a big break. Not a lot of people knew about your history prior to that. Um, right. You know, in the seventies and the the eighties when you became involved, it's forty years, isn't it? This year with the Easy Action. Um, oh yeah, you know it's a forty-year anniversary. Oh wow! I didn't even think of that. Yeah, we're gonna do something of that. <laughs> yeah, nineteen eighty-two, the year you debuted with them. Eighty-three, you became the first Swedish band to sign for a major U.S. label, uh, wow. which was uh, which was the which was Sire, wasn't it? Which was the offshoot yeah. of Warner Brothers. Yeah, so uh, by Seymour Stein. Uh, who signed the Ramones and Madonna and everybody. That's absolutely yeah. right. So what was that like for you back then when you were, I mean, you really were young then, talking about on being on the same level as label, rather, as the Talking Heads, the Pretenders, the Cure, and Madonna. Yeah. Oh, man, so many good acts on that label. I mean, it, it was completely unreal because back then, uh, Scandinavian rock bands were struggling to sort of reach out in the rest of the world, but we weren't taken seriously. It was mostly the UK and America if you wanted to play hard rock. Nobody took Swedish band seriously, really. And <laughs> part of the story is, I mean, first of all, when we actually signed the deal with Sire, it was uh, it made the first page on both uh, newspapers in Sweden. That's how big it was. Because not, not even ABBA signed a major U.S. label deal before us. It was really big. and uh, uh, But I don't know. I've met Seymour Stein since at Midem. You know, the, the yeah, yeah. affair they have in, in Nice. But uh, uh, back then, when he signed Easy Action, I'm not 100% sure he knew we were Swedish. <laughs> 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 Because our manager, Sani Tandan, who was Indian, of Indian heritage, but lived in Sweden and spent most of his time in America, so he spoke perfect English. Uh, he met him at Midem, actually, and made all the, and signed with him in America. So there, there was no mentioning of Sweden or anything. And we all had stage names Key Marcello, Zinizan, Alex Tyrone, you know, so. But it's the music. If you listen to the album, 
even now, which which I did again yesterday, and some of the great tracks on it, Talk of the Town and Rosie, still got a great fresh feel to it. If you listened to it for the very first time, you would think that that was a band straight off the Sunset Strip. Right. <laughs> it's actually really weird, but it's amazing, you know, and uh, we were able to create that sort of thing in Sweden. I don't think a lot of american uh, labels had any, any idea so i guess good job sandy tandon our manager who managed to sign us and after that actually that's that's when the swedish hard rock scene really started to grow the next band i think was alien and as number three was europe who signed with sony and and then a lot of band it's funny isn't it i listened to that as well yesterday out of this world and it, it was perhaps overlooked due to the album that came before it and yeah, that track uh, yeah. but it is it is a very good album that has perhaps and the same with prisoners of paradise perhaps traveled time a bit better than the europe debut album oh yeah yeah actually if you listen to the fans there's, there's a big fan community out there basically obviously and then a lot of them uh, are voting out of this world as the best album Europe did. So it's very popular, I know that for sure. Keep on walking that road and I'll follow. Keep on calling my name, I'll be there. And if a mirror should break, it's easy to take.
You yeah. toured that year as well, didn't you? With uh, with Def Leppard in the in the states for a while on the in the Hysteria tour. I mean, that must have been that must have been some experience. Oh, fantastic! Playing the sheds is just an amazing experience. Which I I wish everybody could do that. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean. You you come there. It's in the summertime, and and um, people are in the morning already are starting to show up with their picnic baskets, and they open a bottle of wine and a, a, a bring a baguette out, and and you know uh, before you know it, before showtime, there's thirty forty thousand people just waiting for it's, the thing. The place is boiling, and you go on stage, and it's just fantastic. Do you remember that gig you did in Mumbai? Back then, you had, there must have been what, 50, 60, 70,000 there when uh, Europe went over there. In Lombardy, no? In uh, Mumbai. Uh, Mumbai, yeah, yeah, in, in, in uh, India. India. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. And it, that was really weird. It, it was a, an amazing gig, and we had two support acts. Um, it was an a local band, a rock band from Mumbai, and I remember the name was Rock Machine. <laughs> what a great name! And and the second was British, uh, and it was Nazareth. Oh my God! Well, that is a band. And that, and that was that was my favorite band. You know, when I was in in in, in school, the Brass and Metas, that Yeah, Dan McCafferty. Dan McCafferty, my favorite singer by far, and and now it was so silly. Now we were supposed to headline, and I remember even coming going up to Dan saying, "I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'm your biggest fan. This is not right." And he said, "Don't worry about it. We're all having fun. He's a great guy." Just going back then to the to the band out of this world. What what are the plans then? Now the the album's out, it's getting good reviews everywhere. Everybody's happy. It's huge in Japan. Yeah. Uh, so, is, are there live events to be scheduled this year? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything obviously depends on the, the pandemic situation and you know how how it's going to affect travels and all that. Yeah. yeah. It would be a no brainer to start with a Japanese tour since we were number one on the album charts. So, uh, and while we're there in in the Southeast Asia, there's a lot of territories we played with Europe that uh, both me and Tommy are big in. So we could easily do a Southeast Asian tour. And from there, it wouldn't be a stretch to think that the four hour flight to Oceania would also work, Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Those things uh, are on the horizon, but obviously an extensive EU tour, possibly with another act like a double bill situation, uh, is in is in the pipeline. So, what about you yourself? Then, what's what's left to achieve for you? I mean, you've done pretty much everything. I mean, you've top charts played in. Yeah, huge stadiums. You've had number one albums. You've had number one singles. I mean, you seemingly have done everything. What motivates you now to actually yeah. get up and do it all again? Yeah, I know. It can only go downhill from here. <laughs> no, the thing is, it would be great to. Uh, I guess it would be great to play some different arenas. I like doing different stuff. It's great that it, it, it's a lot of fun that you bring up the Mumbai gig, 
because that's sort of the stuff I like to do, doing weird, uh, different places. For instance, a couple of years ago, I did the, the Hornbill Festival up in Nagaland in India, and it was just so amazing. Uh, first of all, the, the travel up the mountain, you know, were, were no rails at the side of the road and two kilometers straight down and the roads were just horrible. That in itself was very exciting to see if you'd survive that. Uh, and, and then everything surrounding the festival is something I'll never forget. Those are the gigs you, you, you never forget. So I would like to do, I mean, for instance, I'm just jamming now, but how about Rock in Rio, if they still do yeah, that? Yeah. I yeah. never did that. And actually, I never played in Brazil at all. Or Argentina, that has to be corrected. <laughs> and what about collaborations? Do you have any musical heroes that you would love to get together in a in a recording situation and, and put something down? I mean, I remember talk, asking the same question to, to Michael Schenker, and he, and he came out and said, "Yeah, Rod Stewart." I was like, really? You're kidding me. I was going to say Rod. <laughs> no. <laughs> Seriously. <That's>, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I saw Rod on uh, uh, Johannes Hoff's Hallen in Stockholm in 1980 or 79. Um, you know, hot legs and... Uh, yeah, yeah. Think on sex and it was just amazing. And, and also once he was actually really close to recording one of my songs that I wrote with Tempest. It's called Homeland. It's on uh, the Prisoners in Paradise album. And, and he spoke to Thomas Johansson, the CEO of uh, Live Nation back then, and uh, who played it back to him. And he wanted to, to, to give it a, a go. But uh, unfortunately, Tempest said no which made me absolutely furious. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most stupid decision I heard in my entire life. His argument was, you know, we need it for the album, you know. That, that's a big miss, for, big miss for me, not having Rod playing one of my songs. But now I always love Rod Stewart. He's amazing. That's, that's quite incredible that you and Michael Schenker both have the, have the uh, the same musical hero that you'd love to work with. It's um, unheard of because, I mean, besides that, I don't think we have an awful lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> I played with a guy and he's a nice guy. Absolutely. We played on Sardinia actually when Don, Don Airy was on stage that night as well. Oh, you had Don Airy on the Out of This World album as well, didn't you? Yeah. Did you? And that's amazing. He's what a keyboard player. That's a real keyboard player. I remember. Yeah. The, and lastly, then I suppose I suppose everybody, whenever they talk to you, always asks you this the, this this question throughout uh, however long an interview goes. If there were to be a get together with Europe and Joey was on the phone and said, "Are you going to come back and let's do a tour and an album?" Is it something that still interests you or is that now firmly, you know, packed away and, yeah, I did it once, I've done it, thanks very much, but not for me anymore? Yeah, the latter. <laughs> I, I, I would say no, actually. I would, I would be obviously nice and say thank you, but no thank you. 
that train in my life has passed. I've done that, been there, so to speak. So no, that I wouldn't do that. Tired and broken in a dark and lonely place. My confession is my only friend tonight. Got a lifetime full of reasons to be proud of who I am. Cause I've seen it all and kept my head up
Well, that was the track tonight from Key Marcello's great new album. And uh, the band, of course, of the same name is called Out of This World. It is out now. And if you're investing or thinking of investing in new music this weekend, want some melodic rock which sounds fresh and vibrant and uh, not dated in any way, then this and, of course, Magnum's album, which we looked at in the last show, The Monster Rules, both well worth adding to your collections. Well, that is it. Thanks to Key Marcello for joining me this week. What a genuinely nice bloke he was, by the way. Uh, coming up next time, I'll be talking, amongst others, to Steve Hackett about what he's got coming up this year. It's a very busy year. It's Genesis Revisited. He takes out on the road Foxtrot out of 50, along with some Hackett highlights. Uh, but what about playing us out this week? Well, Saxon's brand new album is out. It's called Carpe Diem, and they just keep getting better and better and better. Well, you get a message as time goes on. This, to play us away, is called The Pilgrimage, one of the best tracks on the album, the new single, which is out today. So listen to this, and thanks for listening to me. I look forward to your company next time. Till then, from me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye.